Lawton Childs had been the governor of Florida for less than a year when a small town on the western coast of Florida sent him a pile of letters with a very specific and unusual request. Childs was a respected figure in the Florida Democratic Party, having served the state as one of its senators for 20 years, starting in 1970. He was a relatively unknown figure before then and needed to up his profile if he had a chance in taking his place in the Florida consciousness. Instead of typical political moves, Lawton Childs took himself to Pensacola and announced that he was going to walk from Pensacola on the western tip of the Panhandle all the way down to Key West. It was called the 1,003 Mile Walk and it earned him the name of Walkin' Lawton. It took him just over three months, but by the time it was done, Childs had garnered respect, attention, and support. He was elected to the Senate that year. He served for 18 years and announced he would not seek re-election in 1988. He had become so frustrated with politics that at the age of 58, he was ready to retire as a politician entirely. He was convinced to run for governor, however, by the Democratic supporters, and in 1990, he beat incumbent Republican Governor Bob Martinez and took the position he would hold until literally the day he died. And within that first year as the governor, the city of Homosassa conducted a letter-writing campaign to newly inaugurated Governor Lawton Childs. Homosassa is right on the Gulf Coast in Citrus County. North of Tampa, west of Gainesville, the city has a population of about 2,500. The town became prominent before the Civil War when a future Confederate senator operated a plantation along the coasts. When the plantation fell apart after the war, the city's central focus point was Hamasasa Springs that rested beyond the tree line, pumping fresh water into a saltwater estuary to create a beautiful pocket of brackish water, popular for manatees and tourists alike. This property has gone through many, many variations, but today it is the Hamasasa Springs Wildlife State Park. The park was officially taken in by the state in 1989 and would become a park that would showcase and care for local Floridian wildlife. They had one problem, however. There was an animal that did not fit that demographic. He wasn't a local animal, not native to the state. He was a hippopotamus. His name is Lucifer, but everyone just called him Lou for obvious reasons. So there were all these animals that lived there, including monkeys and stuff like that, and they started getting rid of those animals, selling them off to other parks or to or, or, or setting them to zoos or preserves, that kind of thing. That is Jack Evans from the Tampa Bay Times. He wrote a profile about Lou last year for the hippo's birthday. Tom Lindley, the guy who was running the park at the time, uh, kind of saved him for last because he knew that people had a really emotional bond. He'd been there for so long already, he was kind of an icon. The park was struggling because it had just redefined its mission statement, local animals only, but the people of Homosassa had grown very attached to Lou the Hippo. He had lived in their waters for decades and become quite an icon for those who lived in the area and for those who made it a point to come to specifically visit him. They couldn't let him go. A letter-writing campaign was put in place by the people of Homosassa to the brand new Governor Lawton Childs. They had an idea for a loophole, and they needed the governor's help. If the park was going to be dedicated to Florida's native animals, then the best way to keep Lou around was, naturally, to make him a native. In his first year as governor, by request from the people of Homosassa, Lawton Childs made Lou the Hippo an official citizen of the state of Florida. 
He still lives at the Homosassa Springs Wildlife State Park to this day. He is old for his species. He turned 60 at the beginning of the year. That's a few decades longer than an average hippo in the wild's lifespan. A birthday party was held at his enclosure in January. School kids from around Citrus County were invited, and a massive cake was baked to be thrown into the massive hippopotamus maw of Lou. It's a tradition now, every year, for Lou to get this sort of fanfare. Seeing him in person, you can understand why. You're standing in the middle of total natural Florida splendor, with palm trees and pines hanging over your head, a brackish river on the horizon, mosquitoes filling the air, and there is a hippo. Jack Evans from the Times visited last year around his birthday as well, and he too was just impressed by this animal. Even the day I went, which was just like a normal day in January, which is, you know, not necessarily like the time that you think would be the busy season. And it, and it definitely wasn't crazy the day I went, but like he definitely was getting the most attention out of anything or anyone that we saw there. He's got this magnetic energy to him. Um, and like, as you say, he's really situated. So it, it, it's kind of like the near the entrance to the park, but it's also very central. Like, if you go in one direction, there's the manatees. If you go in the other direction, there's, like, the panthers and the cranes and other stuff. Um, and so he's kind of in the middle, while also being one of the first things you see. Lou ate his lunch as I stood alongside many families with kids peering over the railings to get a glimpse of this massive creature as he dug into a huge pile of vegetables. He teased us for a little while, puttering around the water, but when he finally emerged and his round, pink-gray form stomped to the surface, I want to tell you that I wasn't just amazed, but I was. It would be one thing to see a hippo pretty up close in a zoo, which a lot of us have before, and in that context, it doesn't feel that special because there's also, like, lions and tigers and bears and elephants and all kinds of beasts, right? But in the context of this being a Florida wildlife park, Lou is both the biggest thing in there, he's like really colossal. Um, you don't really notice it until you kind of get up close and see him, just how big he is. Uh, but he's also out of place, right? Which is what makes it interesting that he's the star of the show there, is that every other animal in Homosassa Spring State Park is a Florida native, whereas Lou is obviously not. There's something about Lou that boggles the mind. I think there's a natural attraction to him. Maybe it's his place. Maybe he has a natural charm to him. Or maybe it's because he is the last remnant of decade upon decade of reinvention and change at this quiet little spot in Citrus County. For Homosassa Springs in the last several years, Lou the Hippo has been the focal point of change. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. For the next two episodes, I'll be telling you about the amazing history of Homosassa Springs through all of the eras in its lifetime. This week is part one, nature's own attraction. Homosassa is one of those rare areas in Florida in which I have spent almost no time in my life. South Florida, Central Florida, the Atlantic Coast, St. Augustine, Tallahassee, the Panhandle, I've been through it all, but this little patch of Florida is one I've spent very little time in, nestled in the middle of Citrus County. June 2nd, 1887, uh, Citrus County along with uh, Pasco County divided from Hernando County. 
uh, so we became our own county at that time. That is Kathy Turner. She's the director of museum services at the Citrus County Courthouse Museum. It was small, you know, 1887 was a long time ago, and even when I first moved to Citrus County to Crystal River in 1964, the whole county population was under 10,000 people. She grew up in Citrus County and helped in the creation of the Homosassa Springs history book that I used as a jumping off point for much of the research in these episodes. The area itself is small, and it doesn't draw as many visitors as its neighbors. Homosassa Springs itself, on the western coast of the county, is pretty much the main draw. State parks in Florida are such a grab bag of styles. Some are natural preserves with miles upon miles of hiking or boating trails. The only animals you'll see there are the ones you happen upon by diving deep into the woods. Some parks are historic locations with forts or battlegrounds or buildings that are held up in high quality for visitors to dive into their own timelines. There are still animals around, like the iguanas down at Fort Taylor in Key West, but they're the secondary feature. There are even state parks that are just one singular building, like the home of the father of air conditioning, John Gorey. They're a quirky trip into history, good for an afternoon visit or a diversion from a road trip, but Hamasasa cannot be explained just from the outside. You need to see it to believe it. I'm lucky that I took a visit a few weeks ago, back when the air was much cooler and the distances between us were not so wide. Homosassa is not like the other parks in Florida, in that it's totally bizarre, a creation all its own, but it's also a little bit of everything, an animal park, a historic landmark, and a quirky roadside attraction. The main feature that is here is a collection of animals, local animals that cannot live out in the wild. Maybe they have been injured, maybe they were born in captivity, but they are here at Homosassa, taken care of and protected. So there are panthers, wolves, bears, owls, eagles, lizards, alligators, pelicans, I mean, there is an amazing collection of animals here at Homosassa. That is the main feature. But the context is really what makes it an amazing visit. It's a ship of Theseus, built and rebuilt and rebuilt again in so many different variations that its current form does not resemble its former iterations. The name Homosassa comes from the Seminole tribe, potentially derived from the Creek language, which the Seminoles adapted when they formed their own tribe. The Seminole chief Tiger Tail fought alongside other chiefs during the Second Seminole War in 1835, but before then, Tiger Tail had settled in at Tallahassee, although at some point it's believed he lived on the Gulf of Mexico at a spot now called Homosassa, which supposedly he gave its name to. The name Homosassa means the place where the wild peppers grow. Then, the war ended, and Seminole land was forcefully taken and given to white settlers. One such settler was a man named William Cooley. Before coming to Homosassa around 1840, he had spent much of his life in South Florida. He mainly spent his time developing land in a region that was called New River. Today, that area is known as Fort Lauderdale. With minimal European settlements in that area, Cooley took up several positions, including as a lawman and a judge. He was embroiled in the civic life of this region as the cities were still settling their very existence. There were only a few dozen people here, but the settlement found itself at odds with the Seminole tribes in the area. When members of the New River settlement entered conflict with the Seminoles, a chief was killed. Cooley demanded that the white men who killed the chief go to trial down in Key West, but the case was dropped soon after. The Seminoles held Cooley responsible for this injustice, claiming he, quote, withheld evidence that could have convicted the killer, end quote. 
As revenge for his supposed negligence, a group of 20 men from the tribe raided Cooley's home and killed a local tutor, Cooley's wife, and their three kids. The New River Colony disintegrated. It would be another 50 years before Fort Lauderdale had any more European settlers, and Cooley fled his home. As the Second Seminole War ended, Cooley was granted land on the Homosassa River, where he lived for eight years until finally selling it and moving to Tampa. The new landowner, starting in 1848, was a railroad magnet. He was the first person of Jewish ancestry ever elected to the U.S. Senate, and he was a Confederate senator when the war broke out. His name was David Levi Uli, and he moved to Florida in 1824 when he was 14 years old. His father was named Moses, and he moved to Jacksonville with the intention of building a community for Jewish settlers in the state of Florida. Uli grew up in Northeast Florida, and even when he started buying land in other parts of the state, he lived around Jacksonville for much of his life. Just two years before buying the Homosassa land, he was elected to the U.S. Senate as the first senator of Jewish descent in American history. He purchased Homosassa from Cooley and soon began operating a slave plantation on property starting in 1851. Nearly a thousand slaves operated a sugar mill in the area, which is still preserved and is itself a state park. Well, it's kind of, um, you know, uh, an amazing thing to see because over the time period after the war, it kind of went into disrepair. And then at some particular point in time, they uh, reconstructed pieces of the mill. So it's, it's really interesting to see because it has some of the original mechanical equipment. You know, there was um, the Yuli uh, Plantation home, which they called Margarita. It, you used to be able to get to it by crossing the marsh to get to it. With perhaps selfish interests, David wanted to build a railroad between Jacksonville and Tampa, so potentially he could travel between his Atlantic home and his Gulf Coast plantation on the marsh. When the Civil War sparked in 1861, Uly stayed a senator for Florida, but with the Confederate Congress instead. When the Confederates lost, Uly found himself embroiled in the plot to protect the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. At the Battle of Petersburg on April 2, 1865, the Confederates saw the writing on the wall. They needed to surrender. General Robert E. Lee could not protect his president for much longer, so he advised that Davis flee. Jefferson Davis fled from Richmond and was hoping to make his escape via Florida. David Levi Uli aided in this, traveling with Davis for some part of that escape. Davis was captured, and a month later, Uli was arrested in Gainesville for helping in Davis's escape. He was held prisoner for nine months at Fort Pulaski in Savannah, Georgia. Meanwhile, Jefferson Davis's personal effects were brought to Uli's other home in Archer near Gainesville. The effects were buried in the middle of the night and would not be found until many years later. Legend has it that one of Davis's trunks is still buried somewhere under the Florida soil. Somehow the plantation home caught on fire. The family and children and some of the slaves had already gone back up to Archer at their, um, it was called Cottonwood, the, their plantation up there. Yuli's home was partially burned down and his sugar mill fell to ruin. His home in Archer remained, but Yuli left Florida after his release from prison. The land left behind was still rich with water, nature, and most importantly, fish. And with Yuli gone, it was up for grabs. Then there was a company, the main person, the president of the company, um, and it was called Homosassa Company. 
uh, and it was in the 1890s, General Joshua Chamberlain was the president of the Homosassa Company. Now you know him, right? Actually, I did not know him. Joshua Chamberlain was a Union Army hero at the Battle of Gettysburg and a former governor of Maine. He founded the Homosassa Land Company with two other northern developers. They purchased much of Yulee's land and started putting up hotels and inviting other northerners to visit the scenic landscape and come to the waters which were chock full of fish. To this day, peering over the bridges into the water, the schools of fish here are staggering. Hundreds upon hundreds of fish, mostly the skinny, shiny creature called the mullet. They circle through the water of the spring, moving in thick walls of glimmering scales. Where there is fish, there is fishermen, and a train appropriately called the mullet train would bring them to the spring, and on the trip back, they would bring approximately 1,200 barrels of the fish from Homosassa every single day. This train, which ran from Ocala to Homosassa, truly put the city on the map. Hotels and businesses were drawn to the travelers, and the city found itself booming as every other city in Florida did during the 1920s. In 1924, a man named Bruce Hoover fell in love with the river and dreamed of turning Homosassa Springs into his vision called New Homosassa. Under the previous owners, there was a hope for a casual, natural escape. But with Hoover, he wanted to make it a destination, the kind of place where the rich would spend thousands of dollars to have their own idyllic tropical vacation. They came from Chicago, and um, they were actually, you know, um, the first developer of the spring. They came here, and the whole idea was to create like a new Homosassa, which then later became Homosassa Springs. And their concept was they wanted to build a city big beautiful, like they had done in Coral Gables and Davis Island and places like that. And so um, they had everything laid out like you wouldn't believe. Folks would come to the hotel, they would fish, and they would enjoy a feature that Hoover called the fishbowl. It was a huge walkway that went out over the water where you could stand over the crystal clear spring and see hundreds of fish swimming and a great movement below. So they had all of these big plans and then, you know, the storms came to Florida and, um, you know, we crashed even before um, everybody else. When the land boom busted, their vision of Homosassa could not come to true fruition. The wars left the park in need of an update. This is around when the first true, capital T, capital A, tourist attraction at Homosassa developed. At this time, roadside tourism was extremely popular before the interstate started cutting the major cities off from the small towns. Driving along country and state roads en route to the beaches in Tampa or Miami from other states could be tedious and boring, but small businesses found great profit in opening up unique and interesting attractions to bring people in. The major theme parks were not a contender yet. It's how things like the world's largest thumbtack became prominent in the country. So, the developers of post-war Homosassa, specifically a naturalist and writer named David Newell, took the original fishbowl concept of a walkway over the water and raised it to a multi-level walkway over the spring. Then another developer named G.A. Ferguson wanted to take the fishbowl even further. And in the early 1960s, when Homosassa was owned by yet another individual, Ferguson had a massive underwater observatory built. It would be suspended over the water, directly over where the spring dumps into the river, and visitors could go beneath the surface and stare through thick glass windows to look out to the fish that swirled below. 
When manatees arrived with the cold weather, guests could get an up-close look via the fishbowl. When they dropped this observatory into the water, they used bananas to grease the mechanism that brought it out to the spring instead of oil so they could maintain the natural balance of the ecosystem. For the roadside tourist industry, the fishbowl was a hit. Guests would bring their cameras and take photos of the plentiful fish that surrounded this glass room. It wasn't enough, however. The park had been passed through so many hands over so many years. In just one century, this little river and spring that many of us may never have heard of came through six or seven owners, most of which have an incredible connection to our shared history. They all had different dreams of what Homosasa could be, but there is one thing that unites them. They all fell in love with the peace and the cold water and the brilliant shade, but they also found that there was an overabundance of opportunity. For William Cooley, it was too much seclusion. For David Levi Yuli, it was too much power. For the developers of the turn of the century, it was too expensive. For a century, men came to Homosassa and sought to make it what they wanted it to be, a center of profit. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how much money they dumped in, none of them could strike the middle just right. There's no way to know why each development had fallen short of true success, but I will say this. In 1964, it was bought by a man named Norris, and he changed it into Homosassa Springs, nature's own attraction. Up to this point, it was a series of bad land deals and failures, until one very notable figure took up residence at the park. Under new ownership, and with a Hollywood deal supporting the park, Homosassa Springs found success in the 1960s thanks to a few new residents. A cross-eyed lion, a friendly black bear, a dolphin named Flipper, some cheerful chimpanzees, and a hippopotamus named Lucifer. Next week, Homosassa Part 2, Native Animals. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you've never listened to this show before, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one, like my episode about manatees from last year, or my episode about Florida State Flag from last September. I'd like to give a very special thank you to my guests this week. They will be back next week. They are Jack Evans from the Tampa Bay Times and Kathy Turner from the Citrus County Historical Museum. They are such a delight, and we will be hearing more from them next week. There are also many, many ways that you can support your local Florida community during this national crisis. I've included some links at the top of the description below, so if you are able, it would mean the world to me and to your community and to those around you if you were able to give. We need each other now, maybe more than we ever have before, and if you have an opportunity to support the people around you, I would recommend you do so. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me that you are enjoying the time we spend together. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her incredible art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name is spelt N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below as well. Next week, part two, the history of Hollywood and Homosassa and the amazing stories of the animals that brought these pictures to life. 
Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Be well, and please, if you can, stay home. Have a good week.